Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining another free DC Partners live webinar. Um, if you're not watching us live, then you are either watching or listening to episode 17 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast. And my name is Kelsey Orth. I will be your moderator today. Our panelists today are Mike McClellan, Rob Boswell, and Christina Tomaino, all members of the team here at CC Partners. For those of you we are meeting for the first time today, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment firm exclusively advising employers. Uh, as you can see from the tagline behind me and probably Mike, we are lawyers for employers. Uh, when we're not working remotely, which we do right now, as you can see from the different settings, uh, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton, Ontario, and we have offices in Barrie and Sudbury as well. Online, you can find us at www.ccpartners.ca. So this is the seventh webinar we've done since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and all on different topics. And as we all know, things have been changing rapidly, uh, sometimes on a daily basis, usually on at least a weekly basis. And uh, our goal with these sessions is to try and engage in dis discussion and get you the information that you need and want and talk about what might come next. If you do have questions, and we got a, a number of them ahead of time, which was great. Um, if you do have questions as we go, please use the Q&A function rather than the chat. And we will try to address as many of them as we can in the live Q&A portion at the end of the webinar. So having said all that, you see the title here of our webinar. It is what employers need to know going forward during COVID-19. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the impact of ESA Regulation 288.20, uh, which came out last Friday, uh, to zero fanfare, and uh, the impact of that regulation on temporary layoffs and terminations. And as well, we're going to, uh, if we have time, do a little bit of a WSIB update. It's been happening on that. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Mike to get us started. Oh, sorry. Uh, agenda first. Um, obviously, you've heard the introduction. Mike's going to start us off with the review of temporary layoffs and the terminations of employment, including the potential effect, <clears throat> excuse me, of the current pandemic on the on the regular legal principles. And then Christina is going to go through a review of Regulation 288.20 itself and talk about what those effects might be. And then uh, Rob's going to talk to us about how the WSIB has been addressing or asked to address and how it has been addressed the treatment of COVID-19 in the workplace. So now, Mike, over to you. Thank you, Kelsey. And uh, I want to say good morning to everybody who's attending with us today. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I wouldn't say there is exactly zero fanfare about the regulation. There were a lot of employee side lawyers claiming that the sky was falling. Uh, maybe they think it's bad for their business. I, I tend to think that employees being able to have a statutory protection for their job is a good thing, but maybe that's just me. Um, the, the new regulation to the Employment Standards Act is really important. Um, 
you know, we, we don't know exactly how it's going to be applied in all cases, but in order for us to really examine what it means and what has changed, uh, I think we really need to take a look at what the law normally provides with respect to terminations of employment and layoffs. So uh, I'm going to take us through that as kind of a, a background. So as you see on this slide, uh, there really are two ways for an employer to lawfully terminate an employee's employment. One is just cause. Just cause is when we have willful misconduct by an employee that has really destroyed the employment relationship. Just cause is the capital punishment of employment law. If you have just cause to terminate somebody and you use that just cause to terminate somebody, they are not entitled to any notice. They are not entitled to any pay. You as the employer are entitled to say, that's it, we're done uh, and move on. If you don't have just cause to terminate somebody, you can still terminate them. Uh, so long as you're not being discriminatory and so long as the employee does not have a, or they're not on a job protected leave of absence, Essentially, any employer can terminate any employee for any reason or even no reason at all, at all, so long as the employee gets reasonable notice. Reasonable notice is going to be actual notice of their termination in advance or pay in lieu of that reasonable notice period or some combination of the two. So those are the two ways that we can actually terminate an employee lawfully. But what is that reasonable notice period? How much notice should an employee get if we're terminating them on a without cause basis? First thing I want to say is that two weeks notice is a myth. In almost every circumstance, two weeks notice is a myth. When it comes to notice of termination entitlement, the Employment Standards Act is almost a myth. Unless you have a valid employment contract that limits the employee's entitlements on termination to what the Employment Standards Act provides, they're not going to be entitled to only their, their Employment Standards Act minimum. Uh, in that case, they would be entitled to common law notice. Uh, let me back up. If you do have a valid contract limiting someone to their Employment Standards Act uh, minimum entitlements on termination, you're looking at, generally speaking, uh, one week of notice for every complete year of employment up to a cap of eight weeks. And if the employee has more than five years of service with the employer and the employer has more than a $2.5 million annual payroll, that employee is also going to be entitled to severance pay. That's two different entitlements. One being notice of termination or pay in lieu of notice. The other being actual severance pay. The severance pay is, again, generally speaking, one week for each year of service uh, plus a partial week for a partial year of service, 12 and a half years of service, 12 and a half weeks of severance pay, in addition to that eight weeks of termination pay they would be entitled, or termination notice, or pay in lieu of notice they would be entitled to under the act. But like I said, if you don't have that contract limiting an employee's entitlements to their employment standards minimums, then we have to apply the common law. And the common law doesn't give us a perfect calculation for each uh, employee in each termination case. Rather, what it gives us are factors. And the typical common law factors are the age of the employee, the length of employment, the character of the position, and the job market. Other factors could apply on a case-by-case -case basis, but as an employer, generally set your expectations. If you don't have a valid contract limiting termination entitlement, set your expectations at about 
one month for every year of service. We adjust it up and down depending on the factors. If you want to know more about employment contracts, we do have a podcast that is dedicated to employment contracts. It's on episode five of the Lawyers for Employers podcast, which you can find on our website at www.ccpartners.ca under the broadcast tab. That is still by far our most popular podcast episode. So let's move on to layoffs. There are two ways to lawfully lay off an employee. One is if you have an express contractual right to do so, and the other is if you have an implied contractual. Layoffs are, again, kind of mythical creatures in Canadian employment law. Uh, If you have a valid employment contract, and and that could include a collective agreement that expressly gives the employer the right to put an employee on a temporary layoff, then you have the right to do so. Uh, If you don't have that right expressly in a contract, you may still have it implicitly if it's part of the nature of the industry you're in or it's an established past practice that would carry with it the same weight as an express contract provision. Um, Now, the implied right, you know, typically occurs, like I said, if there's a longstanding practice that has never been challenged. Uh, or it may be a feature of the industry, a notorious feature of the industry. There are some cases where uh, courts have said employees in construction or manufacturing have to accept that there is an implied right on the employer to put them on a temporary layoff. That's not going to happen in every case. It's actually kind of rare. Uh, once in a while, we can make a pitch. Um, if you do have the right to put an employee on layoff, it will be in accordance with the applicable employment standards legislation. So let's move on to that slide and see what this means, at least in Ontario, because the new regulation really impacts things. All right, so under the Employment Standards Act, a layoff occurs where an employee is receiving half their regular earnings or less, and they are otherwise available to work. This layoff language is a subsection under the termination language in the Employment Standards Act. Because a layoff that is not defined as or does not comply with the definition of a temporary layoff is a termination, Um, which kind of brings me to the next common employment law myth. I didn't terminate the employee. I just laid them off permanently. There really is no difference. So be prepared for that. We can do a temporary layoff in the right circumstance. Temporary layoff can last no more than 13 weeks in a period of 20 consecutive weeks. So you can have someone on layoff, bring them back, put them back on layoff. As long as you have a period of 20 straight weeks where that doesn't happen for more than 13 of the employee's weeks, that's that's a temporary layoff. That is not deemed to be a termination under the Employment Standards Act. There's an exception to that rule too. If you are making substantial payments to the employee during the layoff, and substantial payments, by the way, has never been interpreted in Ontario, or you're maintaining the employee's group benefits, for example, then your layoff is not restricted to 13 weeks in a 20-week period, but for a period of 52 consecutive weeks, the layoff can last for 35 weeks, for no more than 35 weeks. If the temporary layoff exceeds those limits set in the Employment Standards Act, it is deemed to be a termination. Okay, so either if you don't have the right to do it expressly or implicitly in a contract, Uh, And if you do have the right, if you exceed the temporary layoff language under the Employment Standards Act, now we're in a termination and we have to look at what the employee's entitlements are, either under their contract or at the contract. You know what? I skipped ahead a slide, but um, right. So if there is no express or implied duty to lay off and you put someone on a layoff, 
under normal circumstances, that employee can turn around and say, hey, this is a termination. And that's under a theory that we call constructive dismissal. It's not an express, you're fired, we're choosing to end the employment relationship. It is a unilateral decision made by the employer that fundamentally undermines the employment relationship. And, and we had you know, about a three-week period where the court said otherwise, but uh, no, that is the, the law, right? Or that under normal circumstances is the law. Okay. But what do we do? now because we're not in normal circumstances now um well we don't have the answers yet we expect there's going to be a lot of these arguments to be made in front of the various levels of court or at the ontario labor relations board for it. um you know the the common law that would often apply in layoff termination constructive dismissal types of cases the common law has to be flexible to the specific circumstances of each case. We're in unprecedented circumstances now. So my feeling is that, and I think my colleagues would agree with me, that we can't just assume that uh, the way a case would have been settled in the middle of 2019 is the same way a case is going to be settled or decided today. But it's also really important to note that across Canada, uh, legislation is being amended. Uh, that is including providing employees with their with job protected leaves of absence. And I, I think a question that I would have for any employee or any employee lawyer saying that this layoff is a termination, well, how can there be a constructive dismissal when the law in writing and expressly is saying you have the right to your job? Um, you may not have the right to work right now, but your job is protected. Uh, I think that's a question that we're all going to be grappling with in the near future. And kind of on that note, I think we turn it over to Christina to tell us about the amendments to the Employment Standards Act. And on. Thanks, Mike. Christina, is all yours. Perfect. Thanks, Mike and Kelsey. Uh, so as you've already heard last week, the Ontario government published new regulations under the Employment Standards Act. And those are really intended to provide relief from the ESA's uh, termination provisions and temporary layoff provisions, which are, as Mike said, are included in those termination provisions. For those employers whose operations have been impacted or perhaps completely curtailed by the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. So there's three key components of the regulation that I'll walk us through today. Uh, first involves changes to the infectious disease emergency leave. As you may remember, this was introduced uh, towards the start of the pandemic to provide employees who needed to either be on quarantine or if they had childcare obligations related to the closure of schools or daycares to access a job protected leave. So that has now been amended. Uh, the second aspect is deeming certain employees not to be on layoff and deeming certain actions not to be constructive dismissal. So some important qualifiers is that the regulation will only apply during what's being called the COVID-19 period. And this is defined as retroactive to March 1st, 2020, and continuing until six weeks after Ontario's emergency order is lifted. So we're not quite sure uh, how long it will last and how long the regulation will apply, but it is limited to the COVID-19 period. Um, and very importantly, all of the changes I'm about to discuss only apply to non-unionized employees. So for unionized workplaces, uh, the normal rules will continue to apply. 
So as I said, the first component of the regulation relates to infectious disease emergency leave. And what it does is it retroactively deems employees whose hours of work or wages have been temporarily reduced or eliminated by their employer for reasons related to COVID-19 to be on this infectious disease emergency leave during the COVID-19 period. And if you've been on some of our past webinars, you might know that, that we've been saying for a while now uh, that employers should be just placing employees on this leave, don't wait for them to ask for it. Uh, and now it seems that, uh, that the government has agreed with us. Uh, sorry, I'm just having some tech issues, so I hope you can still hear me, uh, but I'll just keep going. You're, you're, you're coming through loud and clear here, Chris. Perfect. Um, so as employees are deemed to be on an ESA leave of absence, the regulation does provide all the usual protections that the ESA would normally provide to employees on a leave. So for example, the right to, their, to return to their job. Uh, however, there are some important modifications that employers may be aware of, and particularly related to participation in benefit plans. So in normal circumstances, if an employee is on a job protected leave of absence, the employer should be continuing their group benefits. In this case, if the employee has stopped participating in a benefit plan as of May 29th, or if the employer had previously stopped its contributions to the benefit plan as of May 29th, then the employer is not required to make contributions to that benefit plan during the COVID-19 period. So this is important, especially for employers who had put employees on temporary layoff without continuing benefit plans, as you're now relieved of that obligation to now implement those benefits again. Uh, that said, for employers who have continued benefit plans, it, it appears that the obligation is to continue those contributions, even now that the employees um, are on leave and this regulation has been introduced. Now, there are two key categories of exceptions that I want to run through. And if either of these circumstances apply, then the employee will not be deemed to be on infectious disease emergency leave as they otherwise would. So the first is if any time on or after March 1st, 2020, the employer took steps to terminate the employment relationship. So this can take a number of forms, either an explicit termination of employment, uh, if the employer has just shut down as a result of COVID-19 entirely and has no intention or ability to reopen, uh, or if the employer had given notice of termination related to COVID-19. And the second category, uh, which I suspect is more concerning for employers, is if the employee had already been deemed to be terminated under the typical uh, temporary layoff rules, or constructively dismissed and resigned, then they also will not be deemed to be on that uh, infectious disease emergency leave. Now moving to the real hot topic, which is temporary layoffs. The regulation provides that a temporary reduction or elimination in hours of work or wages for reasons related to COVID-19 is not a layoff, termination, or constructive dismissal under the Employment Standards Act, even if the reduction continues beyond the permissible temporary layoff period. So Mike ran us through the timelines for that, either 13 weeks uh, in a 20-week period or up to 35 weeks. So that's on hold for the moment, uh, but again, only through the designated COVID-19 period. 
And unlike the deemed infectious emergency leave provisions, uh, this element of the regulation is not retroactive. So like I mentioned earlier, if a layoff has already exceeded the permissible time periods under the Employment Standards Act, that will still be considered a termination. And now it's unclear uh, how this will apply moving forward in considering constructive dismissal claims at common law. So as Mike said, you know, we're not in ordinary circumstances. Um, typically, the, the ESA does not necessarily uh, displace the common law, but certainly employers moving forward can use this regulation, reference this regulation, uh, and you know, take our best shot in making arguments that there should not be common law uh, constructive dismissal claims arising from these layoffs. And so from a, from a more procedural standpoint, if employees have already filed complaints uh, related to layoffs or terminations, those complaints are deemed not to be filed at this point. So employers, if you have outstanding claims from employees saying, you know, I was laid off, uh, my hours have been reduced, those are deemed to essentially not have been filed. So it's, it remains to be seen uh, how this will play out. I'm sure for many employers, this is a real breath of fresh air in this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, giving some relief, some breathing room when it comes to the temporary layoff uh, countdown, as it were. And that's, uh, apologies, my screen is, uh, is flickering. But, I think now I'll be passing it over to Rob, I believe. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Christina. You may have been experiencing technical difficulties, but from our end, it sounded uh, crystal clear and uh, certainly a lot clearer than, uh, than what all of this means, at least at this point. And hopefully that's what uh, we'll figure out through uh, our discussion and through some of the questions coming out um, that, uh, that people have submitted. But before we get to that, uh, I know that there are people out there who are wondering what, like, is there an effect from a WSIB perspective? So Rob, what can you tell us about that? And just a reminder, Rob, you're gonna have to unmute yourself. Thanks, I was just having a short conversation with myself before we began. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I, uh, I think what I want to address first in terms of the, the points that we've got on our slide is that fourth bullet point <clears throat> because that you know always the the cost experience for the employer is the most important uh, thing that that uh, drives a lot of our decision making the wsib has announced that in terms of the responsibility for the claim costs for any claims that have been allowed for covid 19 those costs will not be charged back to the employer, back to any individual employer. So for those of you who are in Schedule 1 and are paying premiums to the WSAB into the Collective Liability Fund, that means that those claims should not show up on your accident cost records, uh, and they won't be included in your accident costs when it comes time to set your premiums in the future. For Schedule 2 employers, those are the employers who are directly liable for claims or the claim costs. Uh, the WCB has also said that they won't charge those claim costs directly to those employers, which is a big 
a change from the norm. So what's going to happen with those costs? They'll be generally paid by uh, the WSIB and, and presumably those costs will be apportioned equally across all of the classes and all of the employers. And then for Schedule 2, there's no expressed uh, explanation for how that would work, but I would expect that the costs would be allocated in some measure into the Schedule 2 uh, administrative fee that is uh, set each year. Um, when we talk about COVID-19 claims in this context, I'm really just speaking about claims for uh, the infectious disease itself. We may see some uptick in mental stress claims. Uh, that's one, one area where I expect uh, we may see a few more claims where people are generally stressed about the experience of uh, actively working in areas, particularly in areas where the risk of exposure to COVID-19 might be higher. Um, there hasn't been any change in direction from the WSAB when it comes to chronic mental stress or traumatic mental stress cases. Um, but that's something that we may keep an, we'll keep an eye on. And if there are some findings or some direction, uh, we can come and revisit that in a, few, a program. Um, the second topic I want to quickly touch on, uh, those, some of you probably have seen uh, some notices and some other lawyers have commented on the, uh, the, the bill that is before the Ontario legislature that proposes presumptive entitlement for a COVID-19 claim for, uh, for certain workers. Um, and I noticed that some, some of those commentaries missed the fact that this bill is actually a private member's bill, not a bill uh, of the ruling uh, party. So this was actually presented by the uh, health and safety and workplace safety and insurance critic for the NDP party. So the opposition presents. It's Bill 191. It's passed through first reading, but my uh, my sense, especially having read the bill, is that it's unlikely to get passed, certainly in the format that it's in. Um, what it proposes is that there would be presumptive entitlements, the similar type of presumptive entitlement that we see for certain cancer cases or other uh, occupational diseases or PTSD, for example, for first responders. Who would be entitled to that presumption, according to that bill? It would be uh, any worker who works for an essential business that had been designated essential by an order under the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. So those of you who have followed the designation of which businesses are essential and which ones were to be closed because they aren't essential, you'll probably remember that the, the first list that came out was pretty expansive. Uh, so there's a lot of businesses, including, um, including legal services, although we're not covered by WSIB, that were considered to be essential businesses. So that you can see that if that bill was adopted as drafted, that could capture quite a few businesses where it really wouldn't even make sense that there'd be presumptive entitlement because exposure uh, to increased exposure to COVID-19 is just not part of the bill. Um, the, the way the bill's drafted, it says a worker who works for an essential business. It says nothing about the nature of that work during the pandemic, 
the risk of exposure to COVID-19. It could conceivably, with that vague definition, include people who are working from home, uh, even though they're working for an essential business. So I think we've got some uh, some of our municipal uh, clients on on the line, and I know that some of those uh, employees are working from home. But the business itself is an essential business. So, you know, this bill would create presumptive entitlement for you, even though you're locked down and, and working at your home, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I, I just wanted, I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about it, even though it's a private member bill, because I think we need to be alert to the possibility that we may in fact see some presumptive entitlement uh, come from the government in the future, although there's been no specific talk about it. The reason I say that is because we are seeing that being proposed in British Columbia, and there's already been a, a directive of the board uh, of the BC Workers' Compensation Board, which is commonly known as WorkSafe BC, to explore presumptive entitlement for particular industries. So it'll be uh, useful for us to keep an eye on that particular development because we may see something similar arise in Ontario. Um, what, one of the most common questions I've been uh, getting uh, in the last few weeks is, as an employer, when is it uh, our obligation to report a COVID-19 case to the WCB? In other words, when do we have to file a Form 7? And the WCB is actually given some direction about that but not a lot of uh, specific direction about it. The, the general rules for reporting any injury or accident is, uh, is that that obligation is triggered. The obligation to file the Form 7 is triggered by one or both of two, two uh, incidents. One is because of an accident uh, or occupational disease, the worker is unable to earn full wages. And what the what that means, and the board has provided guidance in their operational policy about that, it means the worker is essentially unable to, to work or is unable to do their regular, their regular duties. If they're being accommodated with modified work, the board says that the obligation to report is triggered once those modified duties have been in place for at least seven days. In terms of unable to earn full wages, if the worker's absent from work and the employer is continuing to pay the employee, one might say, well, they're still getting wages, aren't they? So why would we report it? But, but it's not about whether they're getting paid. It's about whether they're capable of earning that pay by actually working. So if they're absent from work due to an injury or illness uh, that's, that's related to the employment, then the employer has the obligation to follow Form 7. The other trigger is that the injury or illness necessitates health care. So the worker must uh, or, or, or obtains health care, something more than just first aid, but uh, uh, attends a clinic, attends and gets assessed or gets treated. Uh, and the employer has to obviously know about that event in order to trigger the obligation to report. Um, so how then did those general rules apply in a COVID-19 case? Because it's not automatic that COVID-19 is, uh, is an occupational illness or a work-related injury. It is a, a community spread 
disease and people in the general public are, are being infected by the virus and are becoming sick and, and otherwise non-working people are getting COVID-19 and, and are suffering from it. So what makes it work a workplace injury? And so that's really the question that a lot of, of, of people have raised with me about uh, why should I report? If, even though I'm operating my business during this pandemic, why should I report an employee's COVID-19 when they could have gotten this condition uh, at home or in the public or elsewhere? And so with, with other similar types of um, uh, infectious diseases, the board has adjudicated those cases similarly to, I think, what they're going to do here. And, uh, and really what they look at is whether or not there is an increased risk of contracting the disease because of the employment as compared to the general public. So if we look at past cases, for example, uh, during the H1N1 uh, 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 pandemic or or during the SARS outbreaks that we can recall uh, from early this century. Um, those give us some guidance to how those claims might get adjudicated. But what's different about those situations compared to the current situation is uh, the world wasn't on a, 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 a lockdown. The province wasn't locked down and businesses weren't shuttered because of uh, those those pandemics. This is a unique situation for us where many members of the general public are staying at home. Most of them probably are staying at home except to, uh, except to do essential tasks like grocery shopping or, uh, or getting out to the beer store and the LCBO. Um, so the exposure for the general public as a comparator in this case is a lot lower than it would be if everyone was just going about their normal activities. So exposure to influenza, for example, is common in the general public. Um, but exposure to COVID-19 might be less common just because of the way we're modifying. So what the board will look at, and they've actually provided us with an adjudicative advice document. Um, and as I go into the other comments I'm going to make, I would say it's, uh, it's useful if um, it's useful if you take a look at the board's website because right on the first page of the website there is a link to uh, FAQs, which is essentially a, a question and answer uh, uh, page about claims for COVID-19. It really addresses all of the things that I'm talking about um, in respect of that. So Rob, um, I, I see you looking at the screen. There's a question specifically for you there, um, relevant to what you've just been talking about. Um, asking, are are you saying that businesses could face WSIB fines if an employee got COVID um, via the workplace? I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying the cost of claims would be allocated to the uh, they'd be allocated to the entire. Uh, workforce, the entire Schedule 1 or Schedule 2. Um, ha having said that, if a claim is allowed, uh, the other general obligations under the Act still apply to the accident employer. So the, the main ones that are of importance would be the reemployment obligation or the employer's obligation to cooperate and return to work. So if the claim is allowed and the employee is absent from work, the employer still has to work with the WSAB and the employee to try to get them so there's a potential for a fine if you breach those obligations. 
if if you don't report a claim that ought to have been reported, uh, that would be an offense. But I'm going to talk specifically about the circumstances where I think claims should be reported, uh, where an employee presents with COVID-19. But there's a, there's a lot of gray area, and I, I think we're still waiting for a bit more uh, solid direction from the WSAB about that. But a couple of things, and this is the advice I've given to other clients, and that is, uh, first of all, is is the employee, has the employee actually been confirmed as having COVID-19? The answer to that is no, then there may be uh, good evidence to suggest that they have the condition, but it's not a clear confirmed case. And the WSAB will be looking for confirmation of that diagnosis before they even allow the claim. So if there's no confirmation uh, of the actual uh, uh, condition, then I would say there's no obligation to file the Form 7. But if the employee has a confirmed case and informs the employer of that and alleges that they, or, or says that they believe that the condition is related to work or related to potential exposure at work, uh, it's my view that you should file a Form 7. Essentially, the employee is saying, I think I have a claim. And whether you agree with that or not, you should file the Form 7. If you don't agree with it for various reasons, you can certainly out, uh, outline those objections on the Form 7 or in subsequent correspondence. Um, if a healthcare practitioner makes that allegation, so if an employee presents you with a note or some other kind of uh, correspondence from their physician or other healthcare practitioner saying that person believes the employment was the significant contributor to, uh, I think you should be filing a Form 7. Same thing, if you object to that, you can point out that in your uh, filing. If If neither of those happen, but you're aware that the employee has actually been exposed to COVID-19 in the employee in, in the employment, or there was a likelihood of exposure to COVID-19. Perhaps another employee has also presented with COVID-19, and you've got evidence that there was close contact between. Uh, if they're working in a healthcare setting with uh, with perhaps less than perfect uh, PPE, and there have been known cases of uh, of infection in that. Uh, healthcare center, then perhaps that's a circumstance where you would file the form. Um, Certainly where there's an increased number of COVID-19 cases in the workplace, uh, then I think that's that's a bit of an alarm bell for the WSAB. And we're starting to see some of those situations become public uh, in terms of what are described as outbreaks. I think it's probably wise in in a case like that that you file a form seven again, even if you're objecting to the uh, the uh, relationship to the employment. And then finally, if the WSAB directs you to file a form seven, you must do so. So everything else is is in a is in a bit of a gray zone, and that really comes to a question of how the WSAB is adjudicating these claims. We've already seen some statistical information from them about which cases are being allowed and in which industries. Um, outside of acute care or uh, intensive care settings or long-term care settings, we're not seeing a lot of claims um, uh, that have been allowed by the WSAB. And that's even the case in, for example, 
uh, the food and beverage uh, retail industry where workers are continuing to go to work in grocery stores and at the LCBO. And um, so, you know, I think, think it's, it's important to understand when the board, when the WCB is adjudicating these cases, they're not just looking at whether you were still working or whether you were still working for an essential business, but they're going to look at the actual circumstances that create risk for the employee in the workplace. So there's some important facts <clears throat> that the employer can provide to the WCB when a claim is established to, to guide them on that adjudication. And that includes a description of whether there's uh, known exposure by contact between the worker and another person who is known or suspected to have COVID-19. Um, whether there are opportunities for transmission in the workplace. But also, I think most importantly, to describe the measures that the employer has taken to, to minimize those risks. And we can see, we can all see it in our own public use of grocery stores and, uh, and in the, the beverage uh, retailers, the different types of measures that they have put in place including limiting the number of people who can enter the store, controlling the direction of flow of, uh, uh, of consumers through the business, putting up uh, protective shields at cash stations and wearing other protective equipment and sterilizing equipment uh, and, uh, and, and shopping tools for, for shoppers. Some retailers uh, I've seen are, are requiring uh, consumers to put on face masks before they enter the building. So all of those protective measures, anything that you're doing in, in non, in situations where there is is not direct interaction with the public, all of that is relevant to determining whether there's a higher risk or not. Um, I would argue in some of those cases that the degree of protective measures is uh, is beyond what you might expect in your own personal life. I mean, are you wearing all of that gear and putting up uh, face shields and other protective equipment when you're walking in public. So I think those are persuasive bits of information that, that are probably leading to denial of claims, especially where there's not a clear link to a, a direct contact. Um, so in, in respect of that, the board has actually created an adjudicative approach document and it's referenced on that FAQ that I've just mentioned before. You can see a link to that document itself and it provides you with some. And then the last comment I wanted to make, um, and this is probably something most of you have figured out, but what happens with those workers we, uh, we had who, were, who had other injuries and that we'd been accommodating or who were off work and receiving WCIB benefits prior to uh, the middle of March when, when the pandemic hit? Uh, the WCB has made it clear that what will happen with them is that they're going to be treated exactly the same as they were before the pandemic, uh, before the layoff that was due to the pandemic. So if you were at work uh, on a modified duty program and you were not losing wages, then they're not going to pay you WCB benefit unless there's evidence that your condition has materially worsened since that pandemic. Similarly, if you've been off work, part, receiving partial or uh, full loss of earnings benefits at the point the pandemic started, then those are going to continue uh, and, until and unless the employer actually is able to. So those are my comments.
Thank you, Rob. And thank you, Mike and Christina as well. I know um, there are some burning questions <clears throat> um, and we will try to get to those momentarily. But for those of you who can't hang on, um, rest assured that uh, both this portion of the webinar and the Q&A portion will be published uh, through our website and uh, on our YouTube channel back to the video. Um, <clears throat> so we'll get that going very shortly. I do want to share the, the information um, with respect to contact just in case you don't have it already. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'll put that up while we uh, briefly transition over. But I, again, I want to thank everybody for coming today and your participation, both in uh, using the question and answer function and for providing questions ahead of time because we're going to get to those. And uh, as Mike mentioned uh, in the chat, we have various outlets through our website, YouTube and um, podcasts, uh, a number of COVID related articles and in fact a separate tab for our COVID related blog articles on, on our website as well. Um, so Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.